Wow, there's quite a bit of wind today, but I'm glad that the sun is shining. Welcome to another episode of The Walk. I'm Father Roderick, and in this episode I want to bring you up to speed as to what has been happening in my life, what's going on, plans for the upcoming days, and just general thoughts. Ah, glad to be outside, actually. It's been a while. I've been, uh, in case you, you missed uh, my other show, The Break, you, you may have missed what happened since the last time we spoke here on The Walk. And that is uh, that after I got my COVID booster, which I got a few hours after recording The Walk, um, I've been knocked out for several days. I had a very severe reaction um, to the vaccination. In fact, very similar to the ones that I got after the previous two vaccination rounds. And uh, the symptoms in my case are usually exactly the same as the first time that I had COVID, which is <laughs> not fun. It means uh, fever, uh, dizziness. So I was so dizzy that I could barely stand on my feet, at least for the first day. Um, and, and just total exhaustion. So I've been, uh, um, I, I've, I've been obliged to uh, stay in bed for the first two days, slowly started to uh, build up a little bit of strength. It's now the fifth day, and I'm still not fully there. And uh, it's, uh, I'm, I'm already glad that I can go outside, and I know it's temporary, and it's absolutely... Uh, not the same as as COVID itself. The symptoms are the same, but of course the 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 lasting effects are are not there. And in fact, I should be better protected against eventual um, contamination with the with the real various variants. Uh, although, of course, there is no vaccination that uh, provides you with a one hundred percent protection. So we'll, we'll still be very careful. Uh, this was totally unexpected, though. <laughs> I was hoping that over time I would get used to these vaccinations. And, uh, and, and so I didn't um, plan for an extended leave of, of absence from my work, from my duties. I was lucky in the sense that uh, this past weekend I wasn't scheduled to celebrate Mass in any of the parish locations. Um, usually the fifth week of the month. Sometimes there are months with five weekends. And so when that's the case, the fifth weekend, um, all the, the parish locations will uh, come together in, in one of the churches to celebrate Mass. And so Father Henry was there, Father Eric. I'm not sure if Father Eric was there because I think he was on pilgrimage to Rome. Um, but anyway, I, I had the weekend off. And so, in hindsight, that was almost providential because I didn't have to uh, disappoint anyone um, and I could celebrate Mass at home in my, in, my, uh, in, my, in my rectory and then take ample time to, to rest. It's, it's hard, though, to, to rest and it's difficult for me to be sick. Especially, well, the first day, of course, there's just no alternative. I could, could barely think. I think I slept about 15 to 16 hours. Um, so 
um, yeah, <laughs> no choice there. But then the second day, especially in the morning, I started to feel a bit better. And then immediately I wanted to get back to work uh, until um, the, the, the symptoms knocked me out again and had to sleep for several hours in the afternoon. And this has been going on for a couple of days. Every time I, uh, I woke up feeling, you know, okay, and then uh, started to make plans, uh, looked at my calendar and, you know, maybe I can uh, record another video or edit something. I need to work on these documentaries. Um, and then, of course, you've got all the household chores, you know, to clean the kitchen. And um, there are some things that need to be repaired. There's some administration that needs to be done. And every time, uh, after a few hours, this the energy just goes away and even though <clears throat> I don't have to, to lay down anymore I still don't have any energy left the, the, the way I can see it uh, the way I can tell um, that I'm, I'm still not fit is that whenever I try to work um, I, I get this like feeling that my my whole body is like swelling up and I look in the mirror and I see that I have red cones, you know. Um, and so it's, it's almost, sometimes you have that when you're super tired and, um, and you, get, you get like these red, uh, what do you call those? <laughs> I, rec- I realize that I don't know the word for in Dutch, wangen, uh, cheeks, right? Yeah, cheeks, that's it cheek to cheek so you get these red cheeks of exhaustion uh, you see it with with uh, smaller children as well um, when they've been playing outside and then uh, they, they have expended a lot of energy and then they come home and it's warm inside and they've eaten and then they get these you know, red cheeks where you know that they're either going to fall asleep right away or they're going to have one of those you know meltdowns and tantrums because of fatigue. And so I, I was looking in the mirror uh, the other day and I was like, yeah, <laughs> this is probably the color of your face tells you that you are not supposed to get back to work yet. And it's, it's difficult to slow down and to allow that because there's always this ongoing drive. Like, um, I, like, I want to create stuff. I want to... I want to make podcasts. I want to be there for, um, for my followers. Um, I made all these commitments to go live every day. And, well, I know intellectually, if you're sick, you're sick. And that happens to the best of us. So why would you force yourself to go beyond your limits if you would never ask that from anyone in your own circle of friends or family? Why do you do it to yourself? Um, so intellectually, I can turn it off. But then there's still this feeling. And, um, and sometimes I, I, I almost... I notice that I have that inner talk going on by... So sometimes I just talk to myself. And it's these short outbursts of frustration. Or um, I, I, I encourage myself. And it, it just comes out without even like any uh, effort like uh, an example this morning I was 
making my breakfast and I was uh, um, making some, uh, some oatmeal uh, with soy milk and some raisins. And that usually takes a couple of minutes before... Let me uh, turn to the right here. I'm always trying to find the entrance to the woods and I keep getting lost in the same area over and over again. So, um, and, I, and while I'm just, you know, um, stirring the pot, all of, all of a sudden there's this moment of anxiety, of stress, like, oh, shoot, I, I really have to make a new TikTok video. Um, and I, wait... What else is on my calendar? And then I just said out loud, do more. And, and immediately I was like, I heard myself saying that, do more. And I was, where did that come from? Who is saying that, do more? I'm still recovering. So it's, it's apparently uh, my subconscious. It's like this internalized voice that regardless of how I intellectually have already determined that this is probably not a day where I'm going to do much, uh, there's this other voice that tries to get my attention and says, do more, work harder. Um, and, and so I had to stop and think, so what is this voice? Where is it coming from? I'm, I'm a bit more aware of that kind of self-talk that that apparently comes from anxiety or maybe it's the other way around but it's this feeling that um, you should be done but with, with uh, the after effects of the vaccination right now there's work to do you're already behind get to work do more what are you wasting your time stirring the porridge you could have just eaten a sandwich and then you would have saved five minutes that then you could have invested in being more productive and it's a bit frustrating to hear myself say that or tell myself that because I realize, oh, wait a minute. Huh, I thought I was over this, right? I thought I'd left this idea behind. I know that this, this has been um, one of the issues that has dominated my life uh, since childhood is this, this internal pressure that I put on myself to always do more and always be better and faster and more efficient and, uh, uh, and, and, and to never slow down, never give yourself time to recover, to rest, to just enjoy things. And, and every time I do make room for that and I tell myself, okay, well, I'll just give it some more time. I clearly am not um, back to my regular levels of energy there's this other voice that starts to protest. And it's like, well, but do more anyway. I'm trying to cross the road here without getting run over by these cars coming from both directions. I'm always surprised at how, at the speed of these cars in both directions, since this is still technically uh, the village, so they are not supposed to drive this fast, but there, a lot of these cars are coming downhill and they probably don't look at their, uh, at their speed. All right, well, we should be fine right now because this road goes straight into the woods. Um, and so 
um, the, the, this this almost subconscious um, force that tells me that I am not doing good enough and I should work harder and do more um, is is a reminder that even though sometimes you can understand what's going on and maybe even the causes of where uh, feelings like that come from, it doesn't mean that it's immediately gone. Uh, because, as I know by now, this is part of the way that my brain has been functioning for, <coughs> for decades. <coughs> and so these behavioral patterns are like highways where, well, maybe this is a good analogy, where those neural pathways um, can, are, are, much, are, are, are much faster than the new types of behavior that I'm trying to make my own. And so it, it's these, these new behaviors and new um, uh, attitudes and, uh, and habits are still in the process of, of forging new connections in my brain, whereas the, the old mechanisms and uh, defenses and whatnot, coping mechanisms, they all have been there for so long that it's very easy to kind of, in a moment where you're not really paying attention, to kind of fall back in, that, in those automatisms. And so um, this, this, I, there's only one way to... Uh, to change that, and that is to just patiently, constant, constantly correct that, and to put a stop to that inner talk. Um, and I'm already very happy that I'm aware of this inner talk, because for most of my life I've not been aware, and I just kept wondering why, why I was always exhausted and always anxious and always stressed. <laughs> And never really in the moment, but always thinking ahead. Yeah, I don't have time for this right now. What, what is waiting for me at the end of the day or the end of the week? Um, and so this morning, I did a bit of an exercise or, yeah, a little... Let me just open my coat here. It's the moment I start walking. <laughs> it's, uh, I realize that it's 17 degrees right now outside, which is insanely warm for this month of November. Ah, it's probably not going to last. I think the weather is turning. You can tell from the wind uh, that it's probably... We've had a, almost a week of really hot, warm temperatures, but apparently that it will soon be over. So I'm glad that today, at least, there's still a bit of sunshine. Um, but it is still warm. Anyway, so the, the little exercise that I did this morning was... Uh, I was... Again, this is day five. Okay, now we're done with the vaccine, with, with the, the, the vaccination aftermath. Uh, time to get to work. It's a busy day. <laughs> so I sat down this morning and I started to write down a couple of things that I wanted to do. I wanted to record my podcast. I wanted to edit at least one video review of a, a Japanese anime for the TikTok audience. Um, and... Um, and then I, I started to notice my, my red cheeks. I'm like, huh. Just, just the putting these things to paper and putting it in my planner apparently is already draining me. 
otherwise I wouldn't have that elevated blood pressure in those red cheeks. So I'm clearly stressing out over this. And the, the reason that I put down like five projects for this relatively short day uh, is another sign that I'm overcompensating for something. I'm clearly reacting like, oh, but now, now that I'm finally done with the vaccination, uh, I need to uh, make up for it all the lost time. And that's where I decided to intervene. <laughs> and I told myself, okay, we're not going to do this this morning. The sun was streaming through the curtains in the living room. And uh, it was really peaceful and, and, and actually quite nice and warm in the living room because of the sunshine. Still don't have the heat on. And uh, I have these two big chairs that are really comfortable. They look a bit like Harry Potter chairs <laughs> from the, the Gryffindor common room. And they're so inviting. They have a few pillows and I even have a, a, a dark red blanket for in the evening when I'm watching TV and uh, my feet are getting cold. And I have always a couple of book books, paper books lying around. So for whenever I don't want to look at a screen, even not an e-reader screen, I can just grab a regular book and, and read some. And there was, there was this uh, very uh, thick history book that uh, the Father Henry had recommended me. And, uh, and so he gave me uh, a, a copy of, uh, of Luigi, who had also re read it. Luigi is uh, one of those Italian students that now actually is working in the Netherlands. And so he too had read the book uh, at Father Henry's uh, instigation. And since he had finished it, uh, he wanted to pass it to me so I could read it as well. It's 600 pages. Um, and I've kind of <laughs> been avoiding these very long books, especially you know, a book like this with lots of history and dates and names and places. <laughs> it's not my usual uh, literature. However, I was intrigued because so many people were raving about this book. Um, it tells the story of the Netherlands, which is broader than just Holland. <laughs> so it's, it's also what, you, what is now uh, Belgium. And, 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 and it, the book traces the history how this, this country that I currently live in, how that came about and how that whole thing started in, in the 5th century. So I wanted to read it, but it's, every time I see that book, I tell myself it, that would require multiple days. You would have to read every single day and that's so much time. You don't have that time. You should work. <laughs> read it next year. And, um, and so this morning I was like, well, you know what? I'm just going to give myself permission to sit down and start reading. And that's what I did. So for about a little more than an hour, I just sat in that comfy chair. And the sun was shining on the pages of the book. And I lost myself in the early medieval history of my country. And I was riveted. 
It's just one of those rare moments where I felt like the world around me was disappearing. My feelings of anxiety and stress uh, were also dissipating because I put my mind on, on this different era of our history. And it had a, an interesting effect in the sense that you read about everything that happened for centuries. And then the first chapter describes all these different wars and, uh, of course, this... Uh, Hello, doggy. <laughs> I think it's a white Labrador, or maybe it's a... <laughs> two, two dogs are probably uh, brother and sister or something like that. All right, let me turn to the right here. Uh, when you read about what happened so many centuries ago and 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 discovering that we actually only know like the main characters and all these thousands and tens of thousands and millions of people that actually lived in those times most of them are kind of forgotten we 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 paint history in very broad strokes it kind of reminds you of the reality that your life is actually nothing to get into a fuzz about. Hey, two more dogs. <laughs> Hello. One dog is sitting on the, on the bench. The smaller one observing the bigger dog <clears throat> who is now uh, getting some instruction from, from its owner. Um, and, and that's a reality check that's at least on an intellectual level works really well reminding me that you know what you keep constantly stressing about the things that you need to do um, but in the end you're just a tiny 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 little cog in the in the in the history in the, in the machine of history so why do you stress so much hundred years from, from now, nobody is going to care. <laughs> In fact, probably a year from now, you won't even care. You won't be able to recall what you were so stressed about. Now, as I said before, this works on an intellectual level. And for one hour, I was feeling really, really good. But then, you know, coming, comes lunchtime. <clears throat> I get a call from Father Henry and he's like, do you have some time for me later today? Um, but he didn't tell me why. And so almost immediately, the stress is back. It's like, okay, so what's this meeting about? Uh, what does he want to know? Uh, is there something I can do for him? Or maybe, maybe there's something I have done that I'm not aware of. Maybe I did something wrong. Maybe he wants to have a talk with me. Why would he ask me to have this talk? He never is like that. You should, why can't he tell me through? To, like, immediately my head was like this whirlwind of thoughts. A bit like as if the a storm would suddenly go through these paths here and, and stir up all these leaves. Um, mixed with anxiety, mixed with self-doubt. You know, what's going on? Hey, doggy. Dog number three. Yeah, I'm not going to throw this at you. <laughs> this is my microphone. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you want to walk with me now? No. <laughs> I'm, I, you, don't, you belong to the other people. 
Okay, he's just in a playful mood, apparently. <laughs> so, again, I had to stop myself and ask myself, so why are you now, all of a sudden, in this state of super high alert, where it's almost like, you know, code red, and you're, you're immediately starting to develop all these scenarios in your mind as to, well, maybe... Maybe something is wrong. Maybe I did something wrong. I always apply it to myself, right? <coughs> it's, a, it's a mechanism uh, called catastrophizing. It's always thinking of the worst of the worst. Whereas usually, of course, <laughs> what can it be? Um, but it is a sign of... And, and I, I recognize this tendency because it was very prevalent... Uh, with my my parents, they very often had that same reaction that they would think of the the worst case scenario um, sometimes my dad especially would start stressing out about stuff there 's the path i 've lost the path I'm walking around here in between these trees, and I thought there was a path, but there are way too many leaves here. For that to be the case, oh well, I'll just uh, move on. Eventually, I'll find, I'll find one of those paths. Okay, I'm glad I can see where I walk. And uh, tonight, it's time for my running training. Ooh, nice mushrooms, tiny little white ones, beautiful. Anyway, <laughs> my mind is such a <laughs> undisciplined ADD. <laughs> A dog, like, ooh, squirrel, ooh, mushrooms, ooh, um, focus. The, uh, if we would go on vacation, for instance, my, my dad would start stressing th- two weeks in advance and would kept, keep doing that for most of the, of the holiday. And, um, and so I, I wouldn't be surprised if some of that internal talk and behavior is actually stemming from the way I was brought up and the examples that I had. Uh, but again, it's, it's something that sometimes overtakes me, this, this, these moments of self-doubt. And then if you have that inner voice already activated because you're a little bit tired and you feel like you're behind, um, it can amplify the whole, the whole feeling of, uh, I'm not doing enough. I'm panicking. What is wrong with me? <laughs> and uh, that this is one of the reasons that I am actually walking around here in the woods. Because I felt, you know what? Let's just go for a walk. Let's calm down. Let's talk about this with my followers. And probably, this is usually the case, when I speak out loud what is going on on the inside, it comes into a certain perspective. And I start to realize that, wait a minute... I know what's going on. <laughs> um, and it, I would like to add something to this, to this, this, these thoughts. Wait, I thought there was a path here. There's a boat near this house. Can you believe that? It's called the Salinka. It's literally a very old boat. It's completely in, in disrepair. The, the windows of the boat are... It's a small boat, in case you're imagining something huge. <laughs> um, but the, the, 
the the boat is um, probably used to be um, uh, brought to the to the lakes here in the vicinity or maybe the river even um, but the owner has given up on that and I thought there was a path here but I see two gates in front of me uh, one green gate straight ahead but if I'm not mistaken at least in the in the springtime when I was walking here I think I could even go around that gate because it's not no longer there for a reason it's a little bit like that boat <laughs> maybe the the people that live here now are too old or I don't know they just leave things as they are but it doesn't serve a function anymore again a nice metaphor for some of these schemes schematics that we have in our behavior that may have oh yeah I know here's a here's a, a path that may have once been very useful to deal with certain situations but they're still lingering around sometimes they're activated but they're no longer necessary and so how do you get rid of those of those uh, schematics what is this uh, okay here's a path this is the private property but they but it this sign says that you can walk here uh, during at daytime so that's what I'm going to do yeah I'm now on the other side of the of that green fence so you see uh, maybe in the past used to protect this private property but since the owners have now allowed it, anyone to walk here the gate is still there still looks pretty solid but it serves no function anymore it's just blocking the road so you have to go around it um, so <laughs> using that new metaphor to jump back to our discussion um, this I think is uh, is is one of the things uh, that I am currently dealing with and that is to get rid of those old reaction schemes uh, or schematics I'm not sure what the prop appropriate term is um, and I've learned this through by uh, watching a couple of uh, very interesting videos about about how in therapy um, people are helped to break down these old schematics that may be actually really blocking their progress um, and that are remnants usually of of uh, situations in childhood or trauma um, and that you need to start building alternatives for and so this one video explained the whole broad context of a certain type of therapy i think they call it schema or scheme therapy or schematics therapy not sure about the english name for it and it describes um the lady who who was doing the video or presenting the video she drew first a child in the middle and she said there are actually in all of us there's always there's always a child and sometimes that child um is 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 um is anxious or well any child sometimes has moments of anxiety and fear etc and so we learn we grow up by learning all sorts of ways to cope with what comes from outside both the good things but also the things that are threatening us that are hurting us and in every person you see these different uh, behavioral schemes you could say um, that are all there and she started to draw something that looked like a rainbow like like these protective circles around 
the child. And uh, she, I, I won't go into detail, but <clears throat> she described all these different mechanisms that we develop over time in our lives, some of which can actually still function at a high level in, in uh, adulthood because of trauma, because of negative experiences. And it's very understandable <clears throat> when there is still a perceived threat. Uh, if, if you have lived under high alert for a long period of time in your life, these defenses constantly were reinforced because they used to protect you. And so you reactivate them or your, your mind reactivates them whenever there is a situation that reminds you of the threats or the trauma that you have incurred in, in earlier times in your life. However, at one point they can also become dysfunctional. They can start to really hinder you. And then there is, because there's not just a child in us, there's also the adult. There's also the, the, the person who now lives his or her own life, has a, a lot more agency than a child. Um, so just before I continue, let me give you an example. Tantrums. Every parent among you who has children knows that sometimes, especially younger children, can, can have a complete meltdown where they will get enraged and they start biting you and yelling and screaming. And, um, and there's a ton of emotion. It's the, the kind of the... The reason that these tantrums sometimes occur is that the child hasn't learned yet to defend itself in a different way or to communicate his or her feelings in another way. This is what ideally happens when you grow up. You start to understand your, where your emotions come from. You can express yourself without being afraid. And that helps you to deal with those strong emotions of fear. Um, but it can also be that this, you know, growing up and getting a hold of an understanding where how these mechanisms work and to find alternative behavior to accomplish the same, namely to protect the child inside who feels vulnerable at times. Um, it can very, it can very well be that parts of that uh, that adult that has agency that has alternative means to. Um, to protect uh, him or herself or to get things done or make uh, the person hurt, it can very well be that, that um, those primary reactions take over at times and, and really uh, hinder the development of the, um, let's say, the reasonable adult. And so uh, when I was listening to that, there was one particular thing that she said that struck a nerve because I immediately triggered on it. I was like, oh, wait, this sounds exactly like the sounds that I, that like the stuff that I tell myself. Uh, sometimes I blurt out subconsciously. Um, and it's basically these parent or parental figures can be your parents, can also be other people that you have a dependent relationship upon in your childhood. When they... Uh, handle you in according to two models you can have the demanding parent so it's the parent that is putting pressure on the child to 
accomplish things. Where sometimes, and that's of course not always something that parents willingly do, but it can still be a real effect of the way they behave towards their child, um, where it can seem to the child that, that love is conditional. You first have to show how good you are. <laughs> so there, you have to fulfill the demands and as a reward you get a compliment or affirmation. But that demanding parent can... Uh, this, this happens a lot, I think, is especially today with the helicopter parents, you know, who are constantly hovering over their ch child and trying to push them into... Um, the fulfillment of, of sometimes their own ideals and their own dreams that they have not been able to uh, make a reality. Think of uh, parents that wanted to have a career in music, but they never that never got anywhere. And now their child has to study eight hours per day because they have to become the next, you know, Joseph Liszt or, <laughs> or Beethoven or whatever, or Mozart. Um, uh, or it can also be in sports. You know, where the parents can be extremely pushy uh, towards their children to pursue a career in sports and to be the best of the best. Um, and children being children and not knowing or not, at least not having enough agency yet may internalize that pressure and those demands. And even when the parents are already kind of in the margin of their lives or even gone, they will still keep repeating those, those commands. And well, so that is exactly what, what happened this morning when I heard myself say, do more. It was the demanding parent that I have internalized that all of a sudden reared up its ugly head and said, you're not good enough, do more, work harder. Why haven't you done this yet? And then it, it just starts listing randomly all sorts of ideas that I've had in the past. You know, maybe it's fun to do a, a, an explanatory video uh, with Lego about uh, All Saints Day, All Souls Day. And, um, you know, there's actually, it's not even in my, in my plans for this year. But it's just a, a, a creative thought that I've had. And then I, I read in the newspaper that our bishops in the Netherlands are going to see the Pope next uh, next week. They have their ad limina pilgrimage and uh, in their reports to the Holy Father they all um, complain about the lack of religious knowledge uh, of, of the Catholics. And so uh, most Catholics have no idea what their faith is about. And so, But then my mind and that demanding parent mechanism, because it's it's not just a singular person, but it's a mechanism that I've internalized, starts to turn that idea that I have, hey, wouldn't it be, I mean, I can say, oh, wow, another beautiful mushroom. Unfortunately, someone walked over it. And so it's now laying on its side. This was a classic, classic gnome <laughs> mushroom, you know, red with white uh, dots on top of it, beautiful. Um, that mechanism activates for some reason, probably because I'm still not, I'm not very uh, fit yet. Sometimes I, I, I maybe I may have been a bit sleep deprived lately, and so it it has a stronger hold on me when I'm tired, and it turned that into the do more command. 
Why haven't you done that? It's important. Why? You have all that Lego. You do nothing with it. Uh, <laughs> you should have done this ages ago. Why are you only thinking about this when it's already All Saints Day and you should have planned this months in advance? Which is all completely rubbish, of course, because we have determined what I'm going to do this year. Wow, okay, this path is very abandoned because it's full of trees that are decomposing here, blocking the road. Hopefully this will lead to another path, a connecting path. Um, and so it's this, this, it becomes this demand and it, and, and, and it is all, this is also why you know it's, it's not real because it is accompanied by anxiety. Whereas the plans that I've made for this year, um, they were all formulated with, not just by myself, but in, in talks with the, with the board. So it's a, it's a common decision and I felt really good about it. And I was looking forward to doing that kind of stuff. But there are these other things. And uh, for instance, like this idea of, you know, Lego. Yeah, why haven't you? And then there's also the whole idea of maybe creating some travel videos for, for Dutch TV. Um, the moment that this mechanism starts activating and turns it into a very strong demand coupled with anxiety, you actually know that that is something you shouldn't listen to because it's a, a reactivation of the demanding parent mechanism. That's number one. There's also another parent parental mechanism that unfortunately I also think is very much part of my <laughs> inner defenses. And that's the punishing parent. It is the parent who actually can be violent, angry at you, can uh, rebuke you for not be not following the rules or whatever um, and so this whole uh, th this mechanism consists of fear of punishment uh, and I think that actually really played a much bigger role in my life as a child than I realized up until recently in fact both these parental mechanisms, I think, can be linked, at least in part, to, to my parents and the way that we were brought up. I would say the demanding parent, definitely my mother, very demanding, and oftentimes also um, following a certain reasoning of, uh, this is, this is uh, what God wants. We, we kept hearing the parable of the talents, and it was always used as a cautionary tale that we, uh, under no circumstances, should bury our talents. And it wasn't even enough to just bury a couple of them and have like the, like there are three guys, right? And one buries the talents and another one uh, puts the money to work and, and makes a bit of money. And then there's the, the, the third one and he, uh, he makes a fortune with the talents that he got from his, uh, from his master and he's rewarded in the story. And so that was used as a kind of a, a moralistic fairy tale that we shouldn't go for, we sh certainly shouldn't uh, bury our talents. So if you were good at something, you had to do so you had to make that, uh, 
you had to how do you say that you should you should make sure that the, any talent that you had was always put to the was always used for the benefit of others now that sounds very altruistic and that's always how i interpret, interpreted it it's this high sense of duty that we've been given as children that um, you don't live for yourself you live for others and so god has given you all these these talents and you had better use them for the good of others um, and, and, and not just a little bit but go for the maximum result uh, I think partially it's a theory of course and I'm not a psychologist but I wouldn't be surprised if, if that type of education which sounds very positive you know we're trying to make our kids aware that they should live for other people but but it if you go overboard with that kind of stuff it creates this idea that only the best is good enough but i think that comes also from its generational behavior uh, i know that my mother was raised by a very demanding and punishing mother um and even though she suffered a lot uh, under that, under her upbringing, I wouldn't be surprised if some of those mechanisms were still somehow also transferred to, to us as children. And the reason that I said hello, and the reason that I say that, is that I notice that these mechanisms are here. And it's, it's always risky to blame it on one person, because there are always other people in your life that take on this parental role in your life and may also sometimes reinforce this mechanism and I know that I've had my share of very demanding teachers in school um, one of my most frightening memories that I had uh, from when I was in primary school was this moment that I I think I must have been eight it was my birthday and on your birthday you could uh, hand out sweets and so I'd gotten some licorice stuff and uh, I had some leftover licorice in my pocket and normally we weren't supposed to snack in school uh, but of course I couldn't resist so I snuck my hand into my pocket at one point during class and I ate a small piece of licorice and my teacher she she saw that and she she exploded in anger and brought me to the headmaster of the school and he started this this sermon this very uh, i mean it was a tall guy everybody was a bit afraid of this guy and he starts to yell at me that this was another proof that i wasn't doing my best in school and if my behavior wouldn't change quickly and my grades wouldn't go up then maybe i would have to be relegated to uh to uh, another class and oh i was petrified petrified and that has been such an uh, a strong um motivator in me to keep placating that demanding parent and so in school it wasn't good enough to get a seven out of ten you know, we, we don't have the A, B, C, D grades, but we have a, a scale of, of 0 to 10. And a 6 minus is kind of considered to be just enough. So 
most of my classmates usually would have like a 7 out of 10 for whatever homework they handed in. If I had a 7 out of a 10, I felt miserable. I was afraid to tell that at home. I felt that I needed to have at least an 8.5, but actually my normal level should be a 9 or a 10. And so that's what I did for, my, for the entirety of my school. Not just primary school, also secondary school. And even during my time as a student in university, I always felt like I had to go for a 10 out of 10. And the worst thing is that if, if, if I had less than, than other kids in my class, I would feel miserable. And other, other kids hated me for that. They say, well, how can you be so so miffed about getting a 9 out of 10 you're better than all of them we have to work so hard whereas you get all these high grades and and you're still you're ungrateful and i was like yeah whatever i don't compare myself to you i compare myself to this girl who has actually a a 9.5 in english and i just have a 9 i should have had a 10 or a 9.75 I'm not exaggerating here. This is literally how I've been <laughs> how I've been experiencing my time in school. This is probably also why, even though I was one of the best students and I've always been among the best and super perfectionistic, working until the early hours of the morning to make sure that I used my talents well. Um, it's, it's, it's also the reason that I, I hated school. And I, I sometimes have nightmares of being back in, especially in, in secondary school, and being in, those, in the same position where I fail at a test. Or, and I, I st- I st- in my dreams, I still have those same feelings. So it's becoming more and more clear to me, after having seen that instructional video, that this is clearly a, a, a mechanism that is no longer useful. It's de- detrimental in a certain way. And it is, but it is very obvious where it comes from uh, because this is how I was raised. And the, the punishing father, in my case, uh, my father uh, was a very talented man and is, uh, although he's of course now in a home and uh, suffers from dementia, but uh, he was a, a brilliant guy, uh, very full of humor, uh, an incredible, how do you say that, Gen- general knowledge, general interest, uh, knew everything about history, music, um, extremely socially talented, so he's very loved by his colleagues at work and by people in church, but he also had a very aggressive side and impulsive um, stressed side where he could all of a sudden burst out in anger and and usually when when he was under high pressure uh, he wouldn't tolerate anything so if we were watching tv and we would uh, laugh too loud he would just yell at us and turn the tv off and send us to our rooms and so that kind of punishing parent um and it wasn't all the time, which is confusing for kids, right? If this is like constant behavior. But no, my father could also be a very great guy to hang out with. 
But it were these moments where all of a sudden you would feel that fear of like, oh my gosh. And we and he would hit us as well. Uh, which at the time I thought was perfectly normal. In fact, I was um, out, outraged that most of my classmates, their parents didn't discipline them. And for a long time, I've, I actually thought that, that the fact that... Uh, um, that I that I that I am who I am was also because well you know our parents disciplined us and that's a good thing. Now I would say that was definitely not a good thing, um, especially because at times those corporal punishments, you getting a, a hit in the head and, and everything, um, was when he was not in control it wasn't about us being out of control it was he couldn't control his own anger so he lashed out at us and of course when we got older he didn't dare to beat us anymore but he could still yell at us and being such an intelligent guy he could really mess with your mind and make you very scared and um and so the punishing parent I think is also been reinforced or that mechanism of fear and of course the uh, hello the accompanying idea that uh, I deserve to be punished because I'm not good enough or I'm not doing my best uh, was reinforced by other people in authority that reminded me of that behavior uh, and that did the same be it that guy in school you know in primary school which in hindsight I'm thinking you know what the heck were you doing I was eight years old. It was my freaking birthday. <laughs> that was so completely disproportionate what you did. Now I can say that. That's my, you know, grown up adult mind that has agency that says that. But as a child, you don't understand that. You think that, it, yes, well, it's a person in authority. So he must be right and I must be wrong and I must work harder. Um, but, uh, but unfortunately for me, this tended to create this, you know, high anxiety whenever I was in the vicinity of people with authority over me. Um, and, and this became very obvious later on when I was in seminary in, in the Netherlands. And I, I was constantly, whoa, what was that? Whoa, <laughs> this branch just fell on the ground next to me. Missed me by an inch. Okay. I, these trees also taking <laughs> the role of the punishing parent here. <laughs> um, uh, and, and so, because I was not a standard, you know, ideal seminarian, uh, in, in, in the sense that I, again, worked usually super late. So in the mornings I had trouble getting out of bed and getting to the chapel in time. And I would get disciplined a lot. And it, and it oh gosh, it, it, it destroyed me. I was so um, distraught and I didn't know how to deal with that. And then that was later on amplified by my bishop, uh, who also had this, well, not the, the bishop who ordained me, but the current bishop. He also has that same, like, not even towards me, but he has displayed this, this behavior where uh, anyone who is not in line with what he thinks should be the line is punished. And I've seen the diocese discipline fellow priests 
parish parishes, um, and that has constantly played on my nerves. Like oh, I could be next, you know. So I've always worked so hard to be a good priest and to do everything that people expected of me. This is how I got my first burnout. And that was even, you know, before this bishop. But it was the same. I was, I was still afraid that if I wasn't the perfect priest who worked day and night, that I would ultimately, at one point, I would get punished. Isn't that weird? I mean, now I can look back at that and I'm thinking, whoa, so this is how my brain works. And not just my brain. This is pretty universal. It's that just in, in a lot of other uh, people, um, you, you kind of back counterbalance that with healthier forms of behavior. But I apparently, and the more I grow up, the, the more I see what's, you know, how these mechanisms work. And hopefully also the more I can... I can heal from, from the trauma that has created these, these self-defense mechanisms. Um, the, the uh, what was I saying? <laughs> so I'm, I'm more and more aware that this is what's going on. This is why I have these sudden urges of stress when, you know, I, I get a call or, um, yeah, I need to talk to you. And I'm immediately thinking of, I did something wrong. And I get stressed and I cannot do anything else unless, until the moment that I know what's going on. In fact, I've shared this with Father Henry uh, multiple times in the past. That the worst thing you can do for my inner peace is to uh, tell me, to say that you want to talk to me, but you don't say why. Because then my brain start, goes in overdrive. And, uh, and it, it literally paralyzes me. And this, is the, this happened also yesterday evening. Uh, I was invited by the local parish location um, to talk a little bit about my work and how I did outreach to younger people and uh, how I was evangelizing online. Um, and also, well, they've noticed my style when I celebrate liturgy and I tell, apparently engaging stories and uh, they like the combination of, uh, <laughs> of, of someone who knows how to entertain in a certain way and, and, and tell a good story, but it's also uh, creating room for prayer, for silence. And but they just wanted to brainstorm about maybe different ways to reach out as a parish location, which is a wonderful invitation, of course. Um, and and uh, from my end, of course, I'm not the pastor. I have no uh, responsible role in this parish. But I do have learned a lot about uh, how to reach people and, um, and how also other people from beyond your own ecclesial walls can enrich your life, can help you. And I believe that our church, our Catholic church in the Netherlands, is in dire need of help, of outside help. We need new people in this church, new leaders, new in inspirators, new artists to bring life and, and wisdom back into the church. Because we are a very old, uh, <laughs> dying church, I would say. 
so, uh, but the whole, the whole concept of the, the whole idea behind the meeting was let's think together. We, we don't need to just um, keep doing what we've always done and then wait for someone to turn off the lights. Why don't we just take the offense in a certain way and, and start thinking together about new ways that we can reach out and bring people into the community of the church? Um, it was a wonderful evening. Tons of ideas. You felt the energy in the room. Um, and most importantly, there was a, a, a desire for a follow-up. Let's continue. Let's turn it into actions. Um, so, a, a fantastic evening. And I, I, I was like, see, the church is still alive and well. The Holy Spirit is still uh, touching us and inspiring us and uh, and helping us to try out new stuff. But the day, the entire day before that evening, I was uh, well. Uh, next to the fact that I was still not feeling one hundred percent fit, I also was was not able to focus on anything else. I kept just thinking of that evening. What am I going to tell them? There are a million ideas that I have about how to revitalize the parish and parish life. There are tons of anecdotes that I can share. Um, but I was just constantly, constantly... Um, <coughs> more dogs there. Beautiful dogs. These big, white, fluffy, nice, calm dogs. <laughs> Great. Um, the... Uh, what was I saying? So the entire day, I was stressing out over that evening, almost as if it was an exam. At, you know, like it's a test. I need to prove that I, uh, that I can help them. Um, and and I, I felt just as tense as I would have been if I had to uh, go up for, for an exam in school. Again... You, you, you can see what mechanism was activated there. It's the demanding parent. This internalized voice that told me, you have to really help these people. And you cannot just wing it. No, you have to bring your best and be the solution to their problems. Which, of course, is, that's not the reality People invited me to share a few of my stories and ideas to help them start a conversation and, and think. And this, the future of the parish is always a communal future where everybody can bring something to the table. I was not supposed to give the, the one answer and here's the formula and do this and you shall thrive. Nobody expected that. In fact, I, I, I would be... I wouldn't be surprised if, if people would actually strongly dislike that attitude. Oh, let me tell you how to fix your church. I'm not Gordon Ramsay trying to fix a, a, a fledgling restaurant in, in three days. That's not how the church works. That's not how the Holy Spirit works. And yet, the demanding parent mechanism reared up its ugly head and was putting me under so much pressure that I was... Unable to do anything else that day. Isn't that weird? 
But this is this is the reality. And as you know, here on the walk, I am trying to be as real as it is. I also know that, uh, especially my mother would would strongly disapprove of me sharing all this with you. Who else, who is listening to this? You know, what will they think of you now? Uh, what will they think of the people that you talk about? Huh. All that. But I'm I'm also. I'm also aware that if I don't talk about these things, how can I help some of you that may struggle with the same problem? If I keep talking in vague, idealistic, pious terms, always talking about the solutions, but never analyzing the problem, if I, or if I just describe problems in a sort of neutral, objective way, where I don't have a stake in what I'm talking about and what I'm thinking about, I think the effectiveness of these talks would be so limited. It is because I am struggling with this and I'm trying to work out why I, I am the way I am. And even ultimately, I'll get to that in a second, how this all relates to God and to faith. Um, if, if I am not real and authentic, with the risk, the included risk of making myself very vulnerable, um, then, you know, what, what good am I? <laughs> no, that sounds too much like the demanding parent. <laughs> but I think, I think it's necessary. Uh, it, it's like um, uh, the, the authors that I admire the most are those that are willing to share um, their greatest struggles and also their road to recovery. And it's not that I demand that from everyone, but I applaud the people that feel that they, they can do that. It's a sign of strength. That sounds a bit pretentious when I apply that to myself, but I believe it's true. Um, uh, knowing how to be, how to be vulnerable is a sign of growing inner strength. And, and that's what I feel. I feel like oh, I'm certainly not there yet. And I have a long way to go. And, and sometimes I, I do really well. And sometimes uh, I'm still very much reacting with, according to these old mechanisms. But I, I am on the mend. And I'm, I'm learning about how this works. Which brings me ultimately to the stakes. What is at stake here? It's ultimately also the way I believe. The way I look at God. Because, like it or not, Jesus has taught us to call God our Father. Our parent. Other biblical passages talk about God as a mother. So God is certainly, and rightfully so, the ultimate parent. But the thing is, we can only look at the world through the glasses that we are wearing. If you put on rose-colored glasses, the world would look pink. If you put on sunglasses, the world looks much less bright and uh, everything has a bit of a brown hue. And the same is true for the way we look at God. It is oftentimes colored by our glasses, the way that we look at other parents, at our father, 
our, our father that we have in normal life. And so it's only natural that sometimes we will, uh, let me get out of the woods here. That's a nice BMW here. Although I would never park it under, under these trees in the fall because uh, if one of those branches breaks off and falls on that beautiful, shiny new BMW, that BMW is gonna decrease in value substantially. Uh, but, uh, oh wow, this is a lot more comfortable walking here. The, um, what was I, constantly lose my train of thought. Um, yeah, so the way we look at God and the things that we project on God may be uh, influenced by uh, by our upbringing and by, by the parental models that we've encountered in our own lives. And I've always wondered why God wanted me to become a priest. Because I... I keep, I keep telling this, I keep saying this when I tell my vocation story. I was the least likely candidate for the priesthood. I felt I was not good enough. And why did I think that of myself? Because that's what my parents taught me. <laughs> they totally did not think that I was the kind of material to become a good priest. Um... Especially my mother was very critical, very demanding. You're not social enough. You're always in your room and you're a geek and you are not really interested in people. That kind of stuff. And I actually, at the time, thought that she was right. So I've always wondered, so why would God choose this nerdy geek, this kind of very introverted uh, a student who in fact you know is familiar with the church because I've been a, an altar boy for uh, for many years and my parents were very active in our local parish um, but but why would he want me to become a priest and 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 uh, I'd, I have never had an answer to that of course this is why I think it's a vocation I certainly have not come up with this myself and I would not think I would qualify. Um, but I've always been a very happy priest. If you know me, um, I've, I've always been very, uh, how would you say that? Content with the life that God has gifted me. And I believe that I've also served people uh, up until this moment very well. You know, I'm not going to grade myself, but I do believe that my life has made a difference in the lives of other people, and that fills me with gratitude. However, I've also very often, as you know very well, fallen into the trap of thinking that since I was chosen or asked to be a priest, that was another gift that I had to maximize. And so hey, I have this talent to work with computers and on the internet and uh, I'm good at telling stories and I know how to bridge the gap between pop culture and, and the culture of the church. So, do more. 
You have to work harder. You have to have at least six YouTube channels, two TikToks, five, <laughs> five podcasts, and, and, and always from a, um, working with the talents, because I do believe that a lot of that creative work is something that I, I have talents for. It's just way and way more than God actually expects me to do. And, and I have at times confused the voice of the demanding parent with that of God. Thinking, but isn't this what God asks me to do? Especially in the early years of my priesthood, I sincerely felt that um, I did this, this almost permanent stress that I felt of, of not being good enough for that per first parish of mine. Uh, that that was entirely my fault because I wasn't working too hard and I wasn't praying enough. <laughs> hey, buddy. <laughs> and, um, and then when I got that burnout, I felt like this is the punishing parent, right? This is God punishing me for not being good enough. I should be able to handle this. Why do I collapse at the, at the little bit of pressure that I have? And... Uh, there are so many people in the world that have a much harder life than I. I'm just making this up. I'm just pretending to be overworked. I shouldn't be overworked. I am not allowed to be overworked. You see that kind of reasoning? I mean, that, I, I became aware of that um, inner voice thanks to the, the coach that uh, I was assigned to by the diocese at the time. And he told me, you, <laughs> I don't know what kind of inner dialogue you have, but please stop thinking that God is talking to you as if you were the Messiah. You are not Jesus. <laughs> you cannot carry the weight of the world. You're just Roderick. And, and <laughs> you just have to trust that you, when you do what you can, and you, you, you protect your boundaries, that that is good enough. But God is not asking you to work yourself to death. Because his son is the Messiah, not you. That gave me the religious permission to let go of that, of that anxiety and that fear. But again, it was an intellectual, spiritual uh, insight. But it didn't get rid of the deeper subconscious levels uh, and, and the mechanisms that are so programmed, hardwired in my brain. It's literally how it works. It's these, these, these paths, pathways in your brain. And so the best way to try to heal from it is um, by creating alternative roads. Uh, when we were in the woods there, I was talking about that gate, right? And that it, it's still there and you cannot pass it, but you can walk around it, create a new path that circumvents it. That is, I think, the best way to deal with these old mechanisms that are uh, hampering um, you. And it, uh, to, there, there can be levels... Uh, of activation of these mechanisms where you would say this is not something you can do alone and I've uh, oftentimes hear 
broken a lance for, is that an English expression? Definitely a Dutch one. <laughs> but I've advocated the, how important it is to get to seek therapy or talk to a psychologist or someone or even just a life coach to help you work things out and become aware of what's going on on the inside. Um, and for me, it's always been a bit of a, like weighing the situation. Do I need the help already or, or do I need it at all? Or am I able to figure out what's going on and create these new habits? I'm, I think I'm, I'm pretty good at creating um, new pathways <laughs> in my behavior. <laughs> and um, so I, I've got, and, and in a way, um, yeah, it's never fun when I feel, when I have these moments of anxiety or fear or self-doubt. Um, on the other hand, I know what's going on. And so it's much easier to step away from it and to decompress and seek another way around this and say, well, hey, well, what if I just, instead of doing all this stuff that this, this inner voice told me, do more this morning, what if I just sit in this chair in the sunlight and I just read a book? I mean, isn't that the best, like, talk-to-the-hand thing that I can do here? Um, and I, I think it worked this morning. And, uh, and I also have to say that the community feedback has also oftentimes saved me from my anxiety, tell, reaffirming, you know, but it's okay, it's, it's good, just do what you can. Um, and if there is no new video, you know, well, we understand. It's a busy life, <laughs> so no, no pressure. And so um, that, that helps because I know it's true. And it, but it can also reinforce that alternative voice in which I tell myself to cut it out with all that demanding, punishing stuff. <laughs> it's, not, it's not real. It, it is there to protect... Or it, it is in place because apparently... The inner, my inner child <laughs> has often been very afraid and sometimes for very good reasons. But it's okay now. It's safe. You can let go of those mechanisms. I don't think that they will ever completely disappear. And by the way, that's also not how therapy works. Therapy is not uh, just a magic wand and all of a sudden you have no more problems. No. But it's all about knowing how to to deal with your emotions um, and how to choose how to develop your agency to control your reactions instead of just going with this, these, these waves of anxiety or whatever else is, is going through your mind. And I think that um, now that I understand more about how these processes work, I'm starting to get good at this. And, well, that's also why I, I feel like I can address this and I can share that with you. Um, some people will think it's oversharing. <laughs> and other people may actually benefit from this because um, not everybody talks about these issues. Um, that's it. That's what I wanted to share. How long have I been doing? Oof! Wow, one hour and 20 minutes. This is a long walk. Apparently, I, I just needed to uh, 
get this off my chest. Thank you so much for the time you took to listen to this and uh, and hopefully this helped definitely helped me to share it with you um, talk to you soon god bless and say a prayer for me and for all those that may struggle with issues like the ones i i explained to you and uh, you know that i'm praying for you god bless